Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 3, War. Last time, China began to experiment with representative government, both at the national level and at the local provincial level. It witnessed the rise of Yuan Shikai as a powerful leader for China. Then it watched him overplay his hand, fail, fade, and then he died. Throughout the last episode, Japan's influence into Japan into China's affairs was inescapable. In this episode, I want to talk about the fate of the political experiment after Yuan Shikai's death. I also intend to get into World War I and China's situation and position. Finally, I'll talk about the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. And it is also necessary, I dive a little deeper into the warlord period. Yuan Shikai's death did not end China's experiment into a constitutional government. Peking continued to operate on the 1912 Constitution. Under that document, the parliament chose the president for a five-year term. His cabinet, chosen by the prime minister and ratified by the parliament, was to assist the president the Prime Minister acted as a liaison between the Cabinet and the Parliament. The Prime Minister controlled the military, finance, interior, and communications. The Parliament was bicameral, consisting of a House and a Senate. The members were elected to three- and six-year terms, respectively. Its power was to elect a President and a vice president, pass laws, approve budgets, declare war, approve treaties, impeach, and ratify a cabinet. Under the provisional constitution, its major duty was to draft a permanent constitution. Several consecutive parliaments worked on this task. China remained committed to the concept of constitutionalism. After all, most modern nations had a constitution. There were many in China that observed that a written constitution was the key to a strong and stable government. In their view, two things were clear. One, the Chinese government was weak. It was believed that that was because there was too little public participation in the government. Two, Historically, China was always burdened with autocratic rulers and leaders, arbitrary decision-makers. The only way the public could redress or provide feedback to their government was through civil disobedience and revolts. Chinese political thinkers concluded 
that a constitutional form of government solved both those issues. Clearly, at that early stage of the Republic, China was not ready to chuck constitutional government. The Chinese, it was argued, could learn to rule themselves. The 1916-1917 Parliament continued to work on drafting a permanent constitution. It would be until 1922 when the Parliament finally produced a permanent constitution, called, by the way, Zauquin Constitution, for the President at that time. On June 13, 1917, in a rather bizarre incident, I have read it referred to as the Manchu Revolt, a hardline former Qing general, John Shung, tried to force the installation of the former last Qing emperor, Puyi, as the emperor of China. The effort was quickly handled, and Zhang Shun was chased out of Peking. The prime minister then, Duan Chiri, used the incident as an excuse to dissolve the parliament, a parliament, by the way, that he did not get along with. So in June of 1917, Parliament was, was dissolved for a second time in the early Republic's existence. Just like in 1911, a fresh election was ordered to elect a new Parliament. Despite the objections by several provinces to these actions, a provisional Parliament was convened in November of 1917, dominated by Duan Chiri supporters. That body prepared the rules to elect a smaller, permanent parliament. Those elections were held in 1918. But those elections were marred by bribery and intimidation. Duan Chiri, loyalist, managed to win major majorities. Duan Chiri's party, at that time, was called the Anfu Club. It chose his candidate, Shu Shichang, as president of of the Republic. Incidentally, this was the only peaceful, constitutionally correct presidential secession for the early Republic. Ironic, isn't it? One of the most complex periods to fully understand is the warlord period. It followed Yuan Shikai's death in 1916 and lasted roughly 12 years. I've mentioned the period before, but I didn't really provide any details. It was an immensely complicated period, not as well understood as perhaps it should be. It's also known as the Beiyang Warlord Area, and it's easy to get lost in the woods speaking about it, and I want to avoid that. I also, however, don't want to glance over it as if the period was inconsequential, because it was consequential. Given what we will learn about this area, is it any wonder why the Republic of China failed? Putting a date on when the liberal republic in China became a hopeless cause is difficult. I mean, when did the Chinese leaders and the citizens realize that a Republican constitutional form of government was not going to work. I have my own opinions about that. I trust my listeners 
to decide themselves. I will say this. The Chinese expectations for the right sauce, so to speak, to make a good constitutional republic work were probably too high. Before I get into this period further, I think it helps to understand two broad facts. One, the warlords existed and operated under the Republic of China form of government. They coexisted simultaneously. And two, Peking, for all intents and purposes, was the national capital. I think understanding or knowing those two facts helps put this period in perspective. So what was a warlord? Generally defined as someone that commanded a personal army and controlled or sought to control territory. They generally acted independently of anyone or any entity unless it was part of a clique. More on those shortly. They were a diverse bunch. Through the warlord era, there were hundreds of warlords. Many of them, little is known. The rank and file of the personal armies the warlords kept tended to be farmers and poor peasants. Their numbers are estimated to be in the half million range in 1916 to 2 million in 1928. The Chinese Republic Army looked down on the personal armies, believing them to be coarse, untrained, destructive, and criminals. The warlords' control of territory meant they ran the governments in those areas. As one would expect, the forms of the warlord governments were as varied as the warlords themselves. The same was true for the efficiency and quality of their operations. They relied primarily on land taxes for revenue. They also monopolized local industry, resources, and infrastructure. They charged duties and fees on these. Opium trade was prevalent in some of the territories. Despite all their revenue-generating schemes, most of the territories operated near bankruptcy. Following Yuan Shikai's death in 1916, a schism was created among the various warlords for power and control of China. Many of the warlords formed cliques with other warlords. The cliques were divided into the northern faction and the southern faction. Most of the warlords, initially at least, particularly in the northern faction, were former generals that served under Yuan Shikai during the Qing Dynasty. Without a lot of detail, some of the more notable cliques were the Anhui, named for the province its members had originated. Duan Chiri, a familiar name, was from this clique. There was also the Jili clique, formed from the provinces surrounding Peking. Feng Guajiang, China's president, from 1917 to 1918, was from this clique. Another clique was the Fengtian. This was from the Liaoning province. Its political center was Manchuria. It had the support of Japan. There were other cliques as well, including the ones in the southern faction. What China had was a mishmash of leaders 
prime ministers, president, vice presidents, sometimes from different cliques. That worked well sometimes. Most of the time it did not. There were a series of well-known wars during the warlord period involving one clique fighting against another clique. In 1920, there was the Anhui-Jili War. The Jili clique prevailed and, in 1921, it controlled the national government. Then the Jili-Fengtian War in 1924 led to the removal of the Jili clique from power. The Fengtian clique remained in power until they were, until they were removed by the Guomindang's northern expedition in 1928. I'll get into that later. For now, I think you get the picture. The jumble of cliques and their shifting loyalties created a terrible environment for a stable government. Obviously, most foreign entities were reluctant to deal with these cliques. In some cases, they did, because there was less bureaucracy. In those instances, the foreign entities found it easier to deal with the local warlord. This all meant the Peking government was weak and unstable. In the dozen years between 1916 and 1928, there were eight presidents that served the republic, 24 cabinets and five parliaments. Back to my earlier question, when did the Republican system of government appear to be a hopeless cause? Consider these points. Yuan Shikai, quite reasonably, can be argued, was a failure and a disappointment. He was followed by the then next president, Li Yuanhong. He also flamed out, quickly. Then by 1920, the Anhui clique had faded. By the mid-1920s, the Republic had numerous failed leaders. Disillusion set in, and the constitutional Republic ideal suffered. If I had to summarize the Beiyang warlord period, to put a finishing crescendo to this period, I'd say this. After Yuan Shikai's death, China split into regional warlord fiefdoms. Over the next 12 years, the various warlords fought each other for control of the national government in Peking, ostensibly using the constitutional republic form of government. Other leaders at that time, such as Sun Yat-sen, tried to unite China, and wrestle control of the national government from the warlords. Unlike the Western powers, China did not directly have a role in the First World War. By that I mean, it did not engage in an open shooting war. For China, the war would leave its impact, as I will explain. Let me take you back again to Yuan Shikai's death. At that time, the relations between the United States and Germany were deteriorating. In April of 1916, the United States protested German submarine attacks on American ships. 
In February of 1917, President Woodrow Wilson requested China and several other neutral nations to sever their diplomatic relations with Germany. As a quid pro quo, China requested a loan. I don't know if one was received or not. I do know that as the war dragged on, the Allies faced a severe labor shortage and 140,000 Chinese were recruited. In February of 1917, a French ship carrying 900 Chinese laborers was sunk by a German submarine in the Mediterranean Sea. The Allies requested help in the Mediterranean. That help came in the form of the Japanese Navy. But the Japanese would only do this after they received secret assurances from all of the Allies, England, France, Russia, and Italy, that those countries would support Japan's claims to the Shandong province in China. Playing concomitantly with all of this, back in China, Duan Chiri was indicating to Japan he was wanting to improve their relations. In January 1917, Japanese friends arranged a 5 million yen gold loan to Duan Chiri's government. Japan also made it clear that more aid to China was coming if China declared war on Germany. Duan Chiri's government did so over strong objections from both the president and vice president of China. In August of 1917, his government declared war on Germany, Austria, and Hungary. Understand that at that time, because the European powers were focused on World War I events, Japan was the major power, pretty much uncontested in the Pacific Asian region. Duan Chiri expected more financial assistance from the powers to both strengthen his status in China and the international community as well. The Guomindang opposed these measures. They feared the assistance would further strengthen Duan Chiri. Japan went further. It wanted to parlay their relationship with Duan Chiri into something bigger. Japan wanted to aid Duan Chiri exclusively and cut off all support to his political opponents, which then were primarily in southern China. During the next two years, 1917 and 1918, eight such loans were extended to Duan Chiri's government for a total of around 145 million yen or $75 million equivalent in the United States money. These loans have become known as the Nishihari loans. Only about 5 million yen of that amount was ever repaid. Those loans continue to be a fertile ground for Duan Shiri's political opponents and later served as a catalyst for the Chinese nationalist movement in the next decade. As if that was not enough. The alliance between Duan Shiri's government and Japan did not end there. 
When the Russians made peace with the Central Powers in late 1917, Japan worried an alliance between Russia and the Central Powers would corroborate the spread of Marxism in Russia. Japan sought a secret alliance with Duan Cherry's government to cooperate and support in the counter to hostile forces in Russia. In 1918, Duan Shiri and the Japanese signed a secret military assistance pact. It was not secret for long. The reaction to the secret pact in China was predictable. Wild speculation went through China that Japan had control of China's military forces. In any respect, the secrecy did nothing to minimize the suspicion. The secret pact was just another instance of Japanese aggression and and interference. The objections against the secret agreement forced a split, a geographic split, dividing China north and south. In early 1919, the two sides met in Shanghai to come to some understanding, but nothing came out of that meeting. On June 28th, 1919, in France, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, ending the hostilities of the World War. The treaty was actually part of a bigger meeting named the Paris Peace Conference. The initial meetings between the Allied and Central Powers were ongoing while the North and South China meetings were occurring. These are the meetings I just shared a moment ago. Nevertheless, China sent representatives to the peace conference. China's major issue was the return of the Shandong province, the same one the Germans had surrendered to Japan. The Shandong problem, or Article 156 of the Treaty of Versailles, became an enormous issue. China had assumed that her cooperation and participation in the war efforts on behalf of the Allied powers would be rewarded. That reward, of course, was the transfer of Shandong province to China. Instead, the Allies rejected China's demands and awarded or transferred the province to Japan. The reasons for the Allies' decision was the finishing touch of the event the Chinese delegation learned for the first time that secret deals had been made between Japan and the European powers as the quid pro quo for Japan sending their navy to assist the Allied powers. Probably worse, the delegation also learned that China's own leaders had been partially the cause for the Allies' decision. Duan Shiri's government's deals with Japan in exchange for the Nishihara loans for the Shandong concession, were cited as partial justification for the Allies' decision. When word of all of this reached China, there was robust public opposition and protest. The transfer of the province to Japan was seen by many Chinese at that time as a betrayal again by the Western powers. And, more evidence of Japan's perfidy and aggression. It also exposed the Beijing government as corrupt and feckless. 
What resulted in China from the World War and the Peace Conference would have major impact on the course of events for the next many years. In the next episode, I get into some of the immediate impact on the course of events. I'll talk about the iconic May 4th Movement and the Washington Naval Conference. I also want to cover the rise of communist ideas in China. Put forth as an answer, potentially, to China's woes. And there's more. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. 